Where does one start to describe Dave Pryor? His vision, commitment and self-belief. Do you track the incredible story of his family? His understanding of the power of brands? The dedication he has to himself, his craft and his team? Or is it the incredible products that this extraordinary entrepreneur has built and bought? In talking with Dave, it is clear that no single thing stands apart. He has a unique ability to assimilate all of these things. Dave's penchant for risk is off the charts, matched only by his ability to deliver outstanding outcomes. What is clear is that Dave draws additional strength from his tight-knit family and doesn't make everything one-way traffic. He gives back to his staff and community, and that makes his journey all the more impressive. This is a slightly longer-than-usual discipline episode, but I guarantee you, you will be hanging off every word. Enjoy our discussion. Dave Pryor, owner at Bladnock Distillery, welcome to Discipline. Thanks, Tony. Great to be here. What did you want to be when you were growing up? A forklift driver. Is that it? Yeah, absolutely. That was the that was the uh, extent of my world. You know, I was we started working um, on my mum in my mum and dad's factory when I was seven. Literally, you know, working, not just stuffing around and hanging out in the office, but actually helping them to pack boxes and get orders out. You know, they had a packaging company which they started. They were new immigrants and they started this business off the smell of an oily rag and so our world was centred around, you know, trying to get that business to be a success and in those early years, uh, I was seven, my sister was nine, every single weekend was spent packing boxes Um, and, you know, every night after school was straight pick up, straight back to the factory, we'd do our work there and we'd stuff around in the... In the warehouses, so did you? Did you feel different doing that? Did you think you well, were different? Or it was the that, only thing I knew. Yeah. That's the funny thing, I guess. Looking back, you go, "Wow, what a what a strange childhood." I yeah, guess. yeah. But of course, at the time, well, it was just what we did. Yeah. Uh, so in that world, the forklift looked like kind of the coolest thing <laughs> you could possibly do, which was drive around and pick up pallets. And so that was my ambition to be a forklift driver. Look, I'm sure at some point that morphed into. Obviously, probably wanting to be a businessman, but realistically, I think when I was young, it was we were just um, we were just such a tight little family unit, and it was just about you know whatever mum and dad were doing, we were there together. Mum and dad always worked together, and so there was none of this kind of oh well you know that mum maybe mum will go home and take the kids and what's best for the kids and all these things that I suppose you and I and probably most of the people that listen to your podcast, we're so much in, you know, in such a more privileged position, I guess, yep. that we think what's best for the child and what's the – mate, when you're a new immigrant to the country and yeah. you're just trying to get ahead yeah. and as there are right now today all over Australia and all over the world, people in that position, all you're doing is what's best for the family and, you know, they wanted to move ahead and make their mark and make it worthwhile their, them coming to this country. So – that's what we did. Did they imbue in you through words as much as actions, this work ethic, this sense of, you know, really getting stuck in and, and doing anything it took to? Pretty pretty much. Yeah. I mean, probably not when I was seven, but certainly as we got older, it was, well, I think it was drummed into us that, you know, that was that was kind of the way you did things. And, um, and again, I think from that, that point of view of, you know, they've moved to a new country, and probably who we could see in our 
And I went to school uh, in Springvale to start with, and that's a very multicultural area of Melbourne. And everyone there is new immigrants. And everyone's basically doing the same, trying to make the most of their their newfound homeland and get ahead, working really, really hard. And so, you know, things like school sport and all that and, and going for a surf and everything don't exist in that world. And so, yeah, absolutely, I think it was all about focus and work and and kind of, you know, and building. So uh, I think whether it was said in words or whether it was in action, it was certainly shown to us. And you and you didn't ever rebel against that tight family unit? You saw that as the, the way that was how it was done? I rebelled against lots of things <laughs> <laughs> in my own way, not in a kind of destructive way, but I was always kind of thinking outside the box, I think, if yeah. I look back now. It's probably one trait I think I always had was always like, really? Is that really what we want to be doing? You know, is that the number one thing to be focusing on at school? Like I was always sort of a bit of a broader thinker, I think. But within the family unit, not at all. Not a. I think I was a bit of a naughty kid and a bit mischievous, but not rebelling outside the family. A brilliant family unit, had incredible respect and love for mum and dad, still do, you know, touch wood. We're both happy and healthy and, and still alive and Dad's still running uh, a packaging business at the age of 84. Uh, so, you know, again, incredible work ethic and and really fantastic family unit. I said on uh, my last podcast I wasn't going to delve into pop psychology, but I'm about to. <laughs> Do you think because of all of this with your own work ethic and your own journey you had a sense that you had to pay them back for all the effort and struggle that they put in? I don't think pay them back. Uh, I think in every, oh, look, I don't know about in every, but in a lot of people, whether it's in business or in sport, there's kind of a little element that drives you about maybe wanting to prove, you know, yep. prove. I'm worthy. Look, I, I, Dad and I worked together for a decade and I think at, at a couple of points there and certainly when we sold, we sold out in the 2007, we sold Baroda um, packaging to Vizzy. And uh, I, I was kind of decided to go my own way. And there was a little bit of, you know, feedback from Dad was still a bit about, you know, you need, I needed to prove myself, which I think, and Dad and I have discussed this, this is no secret, I thought it was a bit harsh because considering we'd built Baroda together and, and, you know, exited to Vizzy in a pretty successful way, which transaction that I kind of ran for the family. So I suppose part of the 5am journey, yeah, it wasn't like a driving ambition, but part of it was certainly proving yourself. Yeah. I think it's not just proving yourself to other people, it's proving yourself to yourself. Yes. Because you're kind of thinking, you know, you have an idea and you decide to go for it and implement it. And no doubt, I think most entrepreneurs will tell you, half the time you're wondering if you're actually crazy and if you've done the wrong thing. And, you know, you get challenged so much. When more than half the time. Exactly. <laughs> you get challenged so much when you build a business that you're thinking, shit, maybe I actually have got this wrong. Yeah. And maybe I've made the wrong call. And everyone else was right, but this actually wasn't a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So I think when it comes to some sort of um, level of success and, and then fruition, whether it be a sale or whatever, um, there is definitely a process of going, okay, at least, at least what I thought was right yeah and there was an idea and i could um deliver on it and you know it wasn't just a fanciful dream i think i mean one of the things i always say is you don't really get paid for the idea you get paid for the execution yep 
execution is everything. So when did you break out? You know, you've mentioned Baroda, you sold that, but how did your entrepreneurial ambitions really start to come to fruition? Where where did you go? I want to go on this path. I want to you know create my own um, story. I think you know probably around like the late twenty, my late twenties, I. Started working family business straight out of uni, 22 or something, and did an MBA somewhere in the middle there of my mid-20s. And then... Melbourne you know, Business School? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And then, you know, we built Baroda from scratch and then I, I was really the, in in theory, the CEO, in practice, the head salesman. And uh, that was just the reality. And, you know, and we had a, a great few years and we built up a... A nice business. I think somewhere in the middle of that journey, I really had an inkling I wanted to do something on my own. Yep. And that wasn't, again, it wasn't about breaking away or dad and I, dad's probably the biggest influence in my life and someone I respect and love dearly. Um, but I just wanted to do my own thing. I think I had different, different ideas, different ambitions, different values, definitely much more kind of environmentally focused and those kinds of things I wanted to bring in which in the industry we were in, which was packaging, and also with the, my, a much sort of more traditional mindset of the family, very, very hard to do those kind of things. So there was, there was a part of me that wanted to, and I, I've always had a love of brands. That's the other thing. I, yeah. you know, really attracted to that part of it. And in, in my MBA, I did marketing. That was, you know, could get through and could do accounting and pass it and all that and maybe get a decent mark. But my passion was definitely brands and marketing. Yeah. Again, you can't really if you're a packaging supplier, you're on the you're in the commodity game. You're not you can't make it a brand. And so I was working with brands, ironically, and probably always one eye going, that that looks pretty cool when you can develop something that's actually got some intrinsic value because it's a brand. That sort of excited me. So I think all those things were probably the you know, the parts that were pushing me to, you know, go and do my own thing. So And what about outside influences? Uh at that point, was there anything outside the family unit, your own business, your own studies? Was there anyone that you looked up to or thought, gee, I, I want to go down that path because of this influence or a mentor? There wasn't anyone. I mean, I again, I've always just had a real interest in brands. And I, I look at a brand like Red Bull, for example, that has truly transcended the product. You know, it's, it's obviously not a super healthy product and we don't really know what's in it. But yet through their associations <laughs> with elite sports and, in their case, extreme sports, yeah. Red Bull is this you know, unbelievably successful yeah. wor- worldwide brand uh, that you know somehow people still associate with kind of healthy and good for you and something you do before you go for a surf and all that. Yeah. The reality is I'm sure if you read the ingredient list, you would know that that's not the case. But that's the power of a great brand. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, Many, many other, you know, whether it's in the luxury space or whether it's in the alcohol space, there's so many examples of where the brand has completely transcended the product. Yep. And I think that's a real – when you can do that, you can say you've well, built an iconic brand. And it's even, um, you know, where a brand becomes a noun. You know, they always talk in marketing. I did a Master's of Marketing as well and love that space. But when they talk about Hoover – Yes. To Hoover the floor became the, you know, Correct. the noun. I mean, it's problematic from an intellectual Correct. property point of Google, view. Google, Band-Aid. Yeah. There's, there's a number of those. Really transcending yeah. just a product into the everyday lexicon. 
so you've done some study. You've wanted to chart your own path. Um, there's been a few gaps in sort of uh, when you've gone from one business to another or have you gone straight out of one and gone into the other? If there are gaps, how have you used that time to sort of develop yourself or your ideas? Yeah, the gaps can be hard for sure. So we sold out of Baroda. Um, I was, you know, 37 and look, managed to get, honestly, in retrospect, a little bit of money out of that deal, not enough to start um, 5 a.m., that's for sure, but enough to give me a chance to kind of... Smell the roses. Yeah, to get going. And then we needed a lot of support from the bank before we made our first tub of yoghurt. Incredibly, I've got to say, Westpac had pitched in four million bucks before we'd made a tub of yoghurt, which was incredible, but also put an enormous amount of pressure um, but that's all us. debt. All debt. Yeah. Um, but the gap was a couple of years. And that's where I, you know, I said at the start, you have a lot of these moments where you're thinking, I remember thinking, oh, what am I going to do? What am I good at? And everyone was saying, well, you're good at, you know, you've shown yourself to be good at packaging. You should stay in packaging. And I was like, really? I don't know if I am. Surely I'm, you know, maybe I've got a business approach and that therefore I can do a number of different things. So that was the approach I took, that I didn't have to be just in packaging. I could be in a product. What we knew how to do was take an ingredient, make it into a product and sell it. Therefore, I could do a number of different things. And so I thought food was a great space in Australia. Because food's something we do very well. We've got a good, clean brand image, like the dairy space. Had an attraction to the organic space, kind of, again, probably more from my sort of philosophical beliefs and all that and eat organic where we can and yep. and thought it was a growing movement category and didn't think there was much organic um, produce and products available through the mainstream supermarkets. So kind of started to narrow down onto this thing of organic yogurt. Yogurt was a, a big growing space. Yep. Again, Australians were way behind Europe, for example, on yogurt consumption. So started to narrow in on this yogurt thing and then just said, well, okay, I guess like... Um, like anything, let's now start to design a brand and what's out there, what are the recipes that are out there. Went to Europe to find the product, you know, good product, went to the States to look at the brands and then started to delve down into what was 5am. But that took a couple of years. Yep. And uh, so there's a lot of a lot of periods of um, self-doubt during that. Yep. And that's what I was saying before. I think when you start to actually get out and get into it, there's a bit of a process of going, okay, oh, this is starting to make sense. I don't think it fully makes sense until you're making great numbers and you're making great money. Uh, so what actually you asked about the gaps. So when we sold 5AM, there was no gap because I had lived through a gap of a couple of years and knew it's tricky time. Yeah. So I had started thinking probably a year before we sold 5AM, what do I really want to do next? Yeah. And I'd narrowed down into this whiskey thing, which you know, I'm sure we'll have a chat about, but kind of, again, really attracted to the category, an opportunity to take that brand piece to the next level. And so we'd started making inquiries and inroads into what an investment into whiskey could look like well before we'd sold 5am. So there was no gap that time. Let's jump back to the gap, though, yeah. because I think there's a lot of fascinating things that go on during that period of time. First of all, you're building up a head of steam. You're creating your own, I think you create your own business momentum. But you, for me, each entrepreneurial start is creating my own momentum, my own sort of belief and 
I start, I suppose there's no other way to describe it, I start to wear a mask as sort of like a, this invisible shield of bravado where I can run through walls and that takes a lot of time to build that up. Do you have that as well, that kind of you've got to build up your own enthusiasm for something, start to align passion with product and start to get that confidence that you can run through walls or do you have that just all the time? No, I think, I mean, so I think to some extent what you're talking about is self-belief. And I think self-belief, I mean, if I had to say what's the one quality that sets an entrepreneur apart from from another is self-belief. And, you know, it's interesting you talk to, you know, chatted to Shane Watson, for example, the cricketer, and we're talking about the parallels between the approach in business and sport. And he says, well, the number one thing in sport is self-belief. So it's funny, there's probably 10 different pursuits but I think you come back to the number one thing, which is you have to believe in yourself and you have to back yourself. But I think that kind of enthusiasm and things that you refer to for me is probably comes back to my whole, my sort of morning routine and it was the inspiration for the name 5am, which was, you know, you get up early, you kind of win the morning, you get up, you do your thing. In my case, I meditate, I do yoga, swim or go for a surf or whatever. And, you know, by the time you hit your office desk, you're, you're charging. You're energized. So, yeah. And I think that is super important yeah. because, you know, you really do set the tone and you set the culture for your business. And I think if by doing that you're setting such a great example, people know they've got to be on their game, first of all, they're going to meet with you at 9.30. Uh, but not just that, you just the way you communicate, the way you yeah. present, the way you speak, someone that's clearly, you know, taken the time to prepare themselves. I don't think it happens. There, there are people that can just get up and do that by without anything. For me, it's definitely a process of preparation, yep. I think, you know, taking the time for yourself. And for me, again, it's proven to be in the mornings. It's yep. hard to do it, I think, at the end of the day. And certainly as we get older, you've got family, you've got responsibilities, and, and now I've got phone calls until 8 p.m. because of the UK. Right. So there's no chance I'm going to be heading down to the bay for a swim or going for a surf. So it all has to happen in the morning. Yeah. And I think over time... That builds that, you know, that level of you were saying about invincibility. There's a great quote, you know, who wears the cloak of invincibility best, you know, as a leadership? Because there's times when you're completely rocked, but you, you can't break down or no. you can't. And I'm not a, I don't think I've ever yelled or screamed or raised my voice with any of my team. It's just not the way I operate. I don't swear. It's just not my way. You know, you calm and you work through things. Doesn't mean you don't have to have difficult conversations sometimes and you have to rebuild your teams and all that but you can still do it in a dignified way yeah i think some of that comes back to your basic you know what we were saying before building that that trust in yourself yeah so back in the gap again you're looking at the yogurt space you know you see probably some of the traditional brands like yo play spring to mind but these are backed by massive international companies that own shelf space in your coles and woolies massive global budgets do you ever look at that did you ever look at that and go you know this is a really tricky maneuver trying to get that shelf space and they might be able to squash us if we're grow too quickly or make too much noise how do you how do you reconcile all of these moving parts never did i worry about the fact that we might grow too quickly ironically that's exactly what happened but never did that cross my mind I think two weeks before we launched. So what had happened was we'd been basically told uh, from the start, I was very lucky I put together an advisory board 
And one of my directors was an ex-director of the Woolworths Group. So he knew, great, had great relationships in. And we'd been told, it's a great space, you're definitely on the, you know, you're on the money in terms of your space, the look of the brand, all that stuff. If you can bring the, a good product to the market, we'll support you. That was the extent of the support from Woolworths. It was a kind of a handshake. So we went on the back of that, we built the factory in Caram Downs, you know, just did everything. And as I said, we're already $4 million in debt before we'd even started. And so Woolworths had given us uh, four products, too big, too small, in 400 stores, right? 200 in New South Wales, 200 in Victoria, which is actually a pretty small distribution footprint. So we were working like mad to get this plant delivered and there's a whole, I mean, it's just a, if I could tell you some of the things that went on in that period of getting to market, it was, it was horrific. Never lost your temper during that period? No, no, Jesus. never lost my temper, but I, I was sleeping at the factory by the end of it because there's no point going home because we were just working that hard to try and get the place up to supply the first order from Woolworths. Um, and, uh, in fact, you talk about losing your temper. We, one guy, the, the week before we had to supply, a guy came into my office and he said, and we'd run, we'd run batches and batches and we had to reject some because, you know, it didn't suit the recipe. And he said, um, I've got really bad news. We had no time left to supply. I said, what's that? And he said, I've just pumped, um, 25 litres or something of cleaning fluid back into the yogurt tanks. So there was a, a yogurt tank of 2,000 kilos or whatever, which we were sweating on to get ready to, to fill our first orders, and he'd run the cleaning system backwards. And ruined it. And pumped 25 kilos. And, of course, it only probably went into the bottom 2% of the tank, but I said, well, you have to dump it. You can't take the chance, first no. of all, that and anything could happen there. And, uh, and I think, honestly, the fact that... Um, I didn't lose my temper. It was probably something that people, you know, I think kind of respected and sort of said, well, okay, he's a pretty decent bloke and probably wanted to work harder to, to help us to, to get going. But, uh, yeah. Pretty stressful. Pretty crazy times. <laughs> pretty crazy times. And when you were in 5AM, you're trying to build this brand, you say you want to grow as quickly as you can. Was it always your intention to shoot the lights out with this? Sorry, I just you just went back to your question before you said about did we think we were going to be too successful? What I was going to tell you was that two weeks before we had to be in Woolworths, right, deliver the first orders, one of my directors put me in touch with this guy, exactly as you say, ex-National Foods. This guy had run their yogurt division. He serviced all the major chains. So he was the guru of the space. And so they organised this phone call with him for me and he came on the line and he said to me, look, David, I've been through everything. I've seen your product, I've seen your price points, I've seen this, blah, 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 blah. It is impossible that you're going to survive. He said, you're too expensive. Um, organic milk's too expensive. It's too niche. She had 10 reasons. The retailers will do X, Y and Z to you. And it was, it was kind of just laid out. It was fait accompli about how we would be lucky to survive that first range review, six months. But even if we did, by a year, we would be out. And he said, do you have any scope to get rid of your, sell off your equipment now before you launch? Because you're going to be better to do it now than when you launch. And it was a really gut-wrenching conversation because 
who am I? I know nothing about the space. I know nothing about the retailers. And here is an absolute expert telling you, not in my opinion, but by matter of fact, you are going to fail. And so that's the moment where you go, well, what the reality is I had no choice. I, I might have even believed him, but there was no choice. So we just said, well. Did you believe him at any point? I thought he might have raised some valid points. Did you feel sick in your stomach? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I also had no choice other than to keep going with it because, you know, we didn't, we'd mortgaged the house and invested everything we had, plus we owed the banks, and I had a sort of three-quarter built yogurt factory ready to go to the market. What can you do except push on? So I think, you know. And is there an inflection point in that? Because it happens a lot of the times. There's a lot of people, I always call them snipers on the sideline, saying you can't do this, it's never going to work. Is there a point where that switches and flips over and you go from that sick in the stomach feeling to it lights a fire in the belly and you go, I'm going to, yeah. Absolutely. Do you remember the moment? I think it was all the way. I think there's a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of that stuff you, and I think that's part of my personality and probably a lot of our personalities, which is, um, you know, when it gets tough, you can either run or you can go, you know what? Stuff you. I'm going to prove you wrong. You've just proven you don't swear because I would have used a more colourful oh, word. <laughs> I didn't want you to cut me, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, that's it's a really interesting thing. I know a lot of these things can stick in your crawl for a long time and clearly that's a very memorable moment. Did it change your view on external parties or so-called experts? Do you treat them from that point on with a grain of salt? Or did you have to wait until you'd succeeded with the exit to go, you know what, this guy told me I was wrong. I'll be very cautious of experts again. Uh, no, it's a great question. Not, I didn't, definitely we didn't wait till the exit. 5am itself proved that of, that type of opinion wrong because 5am, I mean, in four years was turning over $50 million and making $9 million EBITDA in a crowded yogurt category. So... The brand and the product, you know, and the consumers proved that opinion wrong. So I didn't need any validation. The sale was just a, as a result of the success of the brand. Yeah. Uh, but the whole process from the sale of Baroda to 5am starting to get going and making money, which was a period of, you know, four, four to five years probably all up between the, the gap and the was definitely a, pro, a time when I look, I look back or I was gathering evidence to say, geez, I tell you what, I can't afford to be listening to other people. Yeah. Because everyone, and I honestly reckon pretty much everyone except my wife and a handful of people told me it was the wrong thing to Your do. Your mum and dad? I think they were, look, they were not that supportive, but not from a negative place, from a purely from a place of, Love and protection, I think. Yeah, I, you know, they were they were worried. They were worried. They knew it was a big undertaking for someone that didn't know much about what he was going into. So it wasn't the the other view, which was, as you say, the sort of snipers. And honestly, a lot of them were not snipers. They were good friends or good business colleagues who just cared about you and were saying, "Dave, you, this is a ridiculous idea. What are you thinking?" If yogurt, if organic yogurt was such a good idea, don't you think one of the big guys would have already done it? That was the most common thing. If this is such a good idea, why hasn't it been done before? Yeah. That's the common one. And you kind of just got to go, you know what? Just because it hasn't. 
There is no reason. There's no rhyme or reason. It just hasn't. It's an opportunity that exists. So there's a couple of things. Firstly, I get to play fanboy. And so the coffee bean is my favourite yogurt. I think at one point, it might have even changed the recipe on it because I reckon it changed at one point. But initially, uh, it was my favourite. Then my wife pointed out to me there was actually a lot of sugar in it. So you've got an organic yogurt that is high in sugar. Was there ever anything in that recipe that you went, geez, I wish we could sell a product through Woolworths that needed less sugar? No. It was a common, it was a common complaint. And my view was always this. Number one, it was organic sugar and it was raw sugar. A lot of the products we were competing with were, in fact, sugar-free, but no one reads the labels, mate. The sugar-free product was the most chemical-filled, preservative-filled, fake everything that you could get. And yet we were the ones who we copped it quite a bit about our sweetness levels, which were actually quite moderate, to be honest. But they were 12 grams per 100, right? Very sugary ones are 17 to 19. Uh, if you go to a Yochi or something, it's 22. Yeah, right. So we so were moderate. Yeah. But the ones that were claiming the most were by far the least healthy because you look at the back. I didn't even know what the things in there were. I had to get the you know, dictionary out to understand the ingredients Fill of these of things. Fill 489. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Codes. Whenever yeah. you saw codes, run. we run a mile. You know, yeah. And we had a clean ingredient yeah. list, a short ingredient list. They were incredible products. And the fact that they were sweetened with, you know, with natural products, I just thought you had to do that. There wasn't the market for, for everything to be unsweetened. You would never have been a success. You have to play the market. You know, we might have a philosophical belief that, you know, don't eat sugar or something. You still got to give a product that people want to buy. And so, you know, I don't, you've got to stay true to your values, but you've got to be, you've got to come to the market as well. And what's the balance then? So if you've got like um, a really good product, but you called it like Dave's Organic Yogurt, does it go on the same trajectory? And then the other question is if you've got 5am but you don't have a great product that tastes as good and has the organic does it go on the same trajectory is or do you just you have to find a balance definitely a balance and you know one of the questions you get asked sometimes is what what was your key success you know what was your usp i don't know i don't think we had a usp i don't think that we still have a usp at flatnock or didn't have one at 5am i think we just did everything the best we could and maybe a little bit better than our competitors. The package looked good. The branding was good. The products were fantastic. Our communication was good, meaning our you know, social media marketing and all that. Our relationship with the retailers was great. We ran a good and efficient business. So all of those things delivered us success. You couldn't say, oh, we were successful because we were the only one that did X. So I don't know. Again, you know, there's other other industries, maybe IT and stuff, where you can get that. We didn't have it. Yeah. I, I don't think you can, you know, now again, we're in whiskey. I don't think you can, you can't tell me a USB of Johnny Walker. They're just an unbelievable brand. Keep looking. Correct. That's their tagline. <laughs> yeah. It's not a USP. Yeah. But, you know, it's they've got incredible 100 years of history, most widely distributed whiskey in the world. And that's their, you know. And most people don't even realise that Johnny Walker, most of it's blended anyway. It's all blended. Uh, yeah. Every one of them, even Blue Label. Yeah. It's all blended. It's a good blend, that Blue Label. It's a nice drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about growth? So manufacturing is difficult. You know, you have to invest in more plant and equipment to catch up with demand. 
how did you manage that? Do you build the, the supply first and let the market catch up or how do you go time to invest in more plant? So different experiences for me. At 5am, we constantly played catch up. So we built a plant that we thought was big enough and honestly all we could afford and we were constantly out of capacity because from the minute we launched, things got went pretty well and then really started to gather momentum. And like I was saying before, we went from four products to six to eight. By the time we sold, we had 26 products in 700 stores with Woolworths and exactly the same with Coles. So wow. you can imagine the, the growth of the brand, you know, because um, – so we were constantly behind and then we'd say, oh, we, we can't meet production. We need to pull in another milk receival tank. We need to put in another fermenter and we need to put in more downstream filling equipment. Constantly behind and scrambling. Uh, with Bladnock, the exact opposite. So I came out of, you know, having run a transaction, you know, reasonably, I thought, reasonably, reasonably well-resourced to go into a new category and built a distillery and built it, too big for what we needed, spent too much money, and then just kind of sat there for two years. Now it's running 24-7 and we're honestly thinking, geez, we could do with a bit more capacity, but it's taken us, well, you know, I bought it in 15, so it's taken us, um, we started distilling again in 2017, it's taken us three years to get to the point where we're saying, okay, we're out of capacity. Were you doing the 5 a.m.? Building up the uh, the plant and equipment on debt at that point, or free? yes, yeah, okay. completely. So still more debt, completely. Yeah, hundred percent. Great relationship with Westpac. They literally held our hand through that journey. Yeah, maybe they also realised at one point they had no no choice but to keep, keep supporting going. us. You know, yeah. but they were they could see. I think that whilst we, you know, for all the success, eighteen months in, we still hadn't turned a dollar in profit. We had the strong revenue line going, but we hadn't made a cent. And, uh, of course, when it turned, then it turned strongly. Uh, but, yeah, I think the bank could see, as long as the growth was there, that they could see the journey towards profitability. And let's talk about the journey at exit. I mean, a lot of people I've spoken to have said the day after exit was the worst day of their life. I get a kind of a sense that the day after your exit, you've got this pr pr profound validation of all of this, you know, thing that, Happens when you sell something, you know, obviously you get money for all that hard work, but there's a lot of validation, self-validation that goes on. Definitely wouldn't say it was the worst day of my life. I know what, you know, I know what you're saying, which is there's definitely mixed emotions. And I think the mixed emotion for me was that um, I was super happy and we were relieved and we were able to pay off the banks and, you know, be comfortable, obviously, and start a great foundation and all of that. But there was sadness as well because this brand was much more than just a it's your baby. You know, we hadn't invested money in a share market and made, you know, money. We had literally it was a part of us. Every element of the branding, the story, the you know, the all that journey that I said about the product, you know, going to France to research the recipes, going to the US to see the branding putting the tub on the shelf, you know, packing the first boxes. I remember my wife standing there in her high heels, you know, <laughs> helping us to get the first orders out. That stuff's irreplaceable. And, you know, there's 120 staff or whatever down at Caram Downs where the facility was, you know, selling them into a new owner. I was worried about that. I was sad about that. But it was all balanced with the fact that 
I'd felt we were we had a lot of debt and we needed to get on and and I also like we were saying before I was kind of ready to do the next thing yeah even though it wasn't that long a journey we only really had been in the market three years five a.m. yeah but I was sort of starting to think of some other things yeah uh, but 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 really mixed emotions so what on earth drives you to the next place when it's so much easier to find something on these fair shores to invest in. You find something 15,000 kilometres away in Bladnock and go, yeah, that, that, that's a good enough challenge, you know. I, <laughs> I, need, I need to recreate the impossible challenge almost, you know. Like what, what's, what's the motivation there, Dave, when you've already sort of ticked the box in well, terms maybe. of... I mean, if things had gone bad, you'd have to say blinded by the emphatic success of the past would have been the true answer. But thankfully, things have, have you know have gone well. But look, in reality, as I said before, I wanted to go into the spirits, spirits category again. Kind of had sat back and just marvelled at the journeys of Patron and Grey Goose and these incredible stories of entrepreneurs that had started these spirits brands and sold them at ridiculous multiples that you can't even comprehend, you know, and and love that whole space and it's premium and it's fun and it's yeah. so there was so much attracting me to that category. Yeah. And then I'd been a whiskey drinker since the day I was allowed to drink. My father and I used to share a scotch and have a chat and it was kind of I just grew up drinking whiskey. Come on, surely before the day you were allowed. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you about that over a scotch one day, but um, sure. But uh, and so there was this huge attraction to whiskey, and I was again of that view that if you're going to do it, I think you don't want to put too many barriers in the way. And I think I felt Australian whiskey still had a way to go, and it's proving to be a great little category. Yeah, it's tiny. Yeah, globally, lockdown in Tasmania. Yeah, look, there's some good stories, but you know, on a global scale, it is still. It's a pinprick, and Scotch has so much history, tradition, know-how, provenance. It's like champagne. You know, Domaine Chandon, for example, have done a great job. It's an Australian sparkling wine. Is it ever going to get global acceptance? Probably not. So I think there is some standout Australian whiskies, but they've got a long, long way to go before we have a you can challenge something like a, a Scotch whisky. So I wanted Scotch. So that was the simply that was the reason why I ended up in Scotland. Obviously, if it's going to be Scotch, it has to be Scotland. And it seems all Scotch to me also seems like an aspirational product for emerging markets. Like you know, it's viewed, it's revered for its history and its connotations. And so there's a lot of I would have thought there's a lot of upside in developing markets for Scotch. Yes, there is no doubt. And that was what I was saying is that you're taking away one barrier which is you know, you're already trying to relaunch this brand, Bladnock, 200 years old, the new brand, Peel Scott, the blend. Uh, but, but one big tick is it's a scotch. And so I think that was the, that was the driver. And, of course, when the Bladnock opportunity presented itself, it was sort of too good to be true because these distilleries only change hands once every you know, what, five years. You'll find one that comes around, generally snapped up by the big guys, uh, and Blad- not many Australian owners of uh, first, oh, we're the first and one, we're the first and only at this stage. And so, um, the opportunity to buy a distillery with two hundred years of history, with sort of significant aged whiskey stocks in sixty acres of land, twelve production warehouses, all that was unbelievable. Uh, but the reality is, I actually didn't. I missed it the first time, so it was on the market. 
and it was being run by Ernst and Young out of out of um, Glasgow. And I said, no, this is too too much like a competitive process. I don't think I'm going to partake. I, I was going to go down the path of building my own distillery, a new build, which is truly crazy. Like if you want to talk crazy, that is crazy because you're buying a new block of land and you're putting down sheds and warehouses and all that stuff and distilling and waiting 10 years before you can get and you've got a quality a brand and go from scratch so yeah. that was truly i think that would have been too bigger in retrospect too big a piece of the pie to, to bite off and so bladnock uh, was there in the background i was aware what was going on and it sold it sold it actually got sold to a to a family from from india and I was in Edinburgh at the time with my in- independent director and we were there to sign off on the build of this new distillery. And the costs were blowing out. We were already up to uh, £12 million pounds, right, for a small distillery with a couple of warehouses in the middle of nowhere, no river, nothing, no running water. We were going to have to go down, drill, and like had bores to get the water source, which... Again, now I look back and go, what on earth was I thinking? And uh, I said to, to my, and I, I knew where we were at in terms of price. We were already up around that 12, 14, 15 million pounds. And I said, how's Bladenock going? And he said, it got knocked back yesterday by the UK government. Right. Well, what happened? They said, well, you know, you've got to go through HMRC approval and it got knocked back. Is it like FIRB? Yes. Of, yeah, foreign investment review. And so board? I said, do you happen to know what the price was he told me was basically around the same we were looking at about to commit to and so i said daddy you, that we have to buy that and so i rang ernst and young and said what's the story and they said yeah so it's been knocked back there's already two parties that are now well through into the due diligence period to so i said okay so we put together a team lawyers and accountants and we were behind so i put an offer in half a million above what i heard was the kind of the market price and during that period of about a month, I decided that if we didn't get it, I was not going to yeah. go ahead because yeah. I, I'd, I'd learned enough in the past year to know that my, this idea of a new build was just too hard. Maybe if you have a hundred year timeline, you can, and you've got generations of family that you're thinking about, and you can, you can justify it. But for me, it was not, it couldn't be justified. And so. We then secured Bladenock and, and that was kind of what happened. I mean, what a piece of luck being in Edinburgh at the time, hearing the news. I mean, do you ever think, how did this land in my lap? That was what I call serendipity. Yeah, proper magic dust. Absolutely. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Not only to have all that line up, to, to have it line up at a time when I had the resources to transact because it was still a... 15 plus, you know, we had to redo the distillery. They're up for 25 million pounds before you've blinked. So for me to be in a position to be able to do it, to be in a region where I love the whiskey profile, lowlands whiskey, lighter, grassier style, everything just, and then, of course, all those things we said before. You can't make 200 years of history. There's just no, and the more we go through that journey, and just to, just today we were talking about, one of our office team, her grandfather was the stillman. You know, he worked there in the 60s and then she's watched Bladnock as a part of that town and where it sits in the community and now she's working for us. You know, these wonderful stories about bringing that asset and distillery back to life 
bigger and better than it's ever been for you know centerpiece centerpiece of that part of the Scottish Lowlands and where it sits for the community and it's just an incredible. And you do you do you revel in that responsibility of like uh, owning the lifeblood of a community? So far, I mean, and again, so far away from home. Yeah, look, I don't know if I revel in the responsibility. I just see it as a tremendous privilege. Just feel totally honoured that, you know, it's like the custodianship. We talk about about you know, the traditional owners of the land and the, the traditional custodians. You never really... I don't really see us as the owners. We are currently the ones that are looking after it and investing in it. And Bladnock will go for another 200 years. I've got no doubt about it, especially now with kind of this period of significant reinvestment it's making pretty decent you know i guess for the in the industry it's highly profitable it'll be a um, black and white photo of you on the wall that's all i'll be in, uh, <laughs> i'll be up on the visitor center wall like the mcclellan family who owned it for 120 years but but what a joy that is yes and you know and so we've played our part that bladnock could have gone either way because they hadn't made liquid for seven years Depending who who had bought it and what they really had planned for it, that could have been it. Another lost distillery gone. Um, I just want to ask a couple of questions because you know you built some great businesses. Values, you know, you've got this five a.m. mentality, getting up early, uh, being on the tip of your toes as early as possible. How do you sort of reconcile staff that come through that aren't of the same build as you? How do you how do you instill these values in other people that aren't necessarily invested in the business to the same extent you are? No, I completely understand. That's a great question. I think different for different uh, businesses and brands as well. Five AM, we were definitely obviously the whole thing was about the morning. That was the lifeblood of not just the brand but the product. You know, you eat yogurt know, typically in the morning, so it was a morning business, and so there was emphasis around the fact that to be part of that team, especially if you're on the marketing and comms side, you needed to be part of that 5am journey. And largely they were. Different now, we're in the alcohol space. In fact, many in many ways you're, you're, in, the you're in the nighttime <laughs> space. So, you know, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a juggle. And, for example, I've got members of the marketing team now who don't work early. And I, you know what? They come into work honestly at 10.30. And I don't mind at all because I think at the end of the day you've got to join, you've got to judge people by their results. You know, often I'm going to do a lot of reading and stuff around sport. I like getting a lot of you know some parallels and learnings from sport and sport great sporting teams. And they talk about Shane Warne during that period of Buchanan and all of that. And he was not the man. He was not part of the club. He was not into the whole mantra of you know the baggy green mentality. But he was such a superstar that he didn't have to be on the journey, but he had to be extra good because he wasn't on the journey. So I think if you're not going to live the brand, you've got to be really good. So you're saying there's a place for Mavericks? I think absolutely yeah. there has to be a place for Mavericks. The part that we can't uh, let go is the values around things like respect, honesty, integrity. Those values are non-negotiable. So that's a totally different thing. What we're talking about before was the brand values. What we're talking about now is the company values. And those ones are definitely non-negotiable. So if I find that, um, you know, there's been, you know, there's, there's, there's bullying or there's people talking down to each other or badly about each other, that sort of stuff, 
that is non-negotiable and that has to be dealt with. And if it's a repeated thing, that then, then that person is not for our business. So they're, they're definitely non-negotiables for us. So values, vision and values plays an incredibly important part in the business. But I think, yeah, the brand values have to come and go depending on the category and the space that you're in. Global pandemic, what's next for Dave Pryor managing this business from 15,000 kilometres away? So just continued growth? Do you, do you chart a path for exit or are you happy to be this custodian of Bladnock for as long as you can? I think, look, a couple of things. One is when we when we sold 5AM, we put you know almost half of the, of the sale price into a foundation. So we've now got a, a platform where we can, you know, in five years we've donated 10 million bucks and that's kind of our... And we'll do the same over the next five years. And um, so we've got that incredible footprint which should last for the next generation and beyond um, as long as it's managed and invested well. We work with incredible partners, citizens of the Great Barrier Reef, Green Australia, a lot in the Indigenous space. So that for me is something that is there and now hopefully will always be there and is kind of, you talk about career path and progression and transitions, I just see myself transitioning into that because that's really what I'm incredibly passionate about yeah. and really lights me up and gives me incredible intrinsic reward and something I've just enjoyed so much this last five years. And, look, I think over the next five years, you know, maybe a sale. Don't know. It's, it's such a great category and it's such a great business and it's, it's such a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I'd just love to stay in. Who knows, mate? See, see what it, happens. See where it goes. <laughs> All right. Quick fire round. Uh, Said your father, but who else has been an inspiration to you? I'm, I'm going to say my father again, mate, rather than get bogged down in trying to think of someone else because just that resilience, that ability to take a risk, um, to come from nothing, to start a business with literally no money and um, the hard work, the ethic, um, just inspirational people. I'll say the other one, my mum. Yeah. You know, again, the, you know, just that the the... the, the family unit to stick together through, you know, it's, this pandemic has thrown up so many sad stories about family breakdowns and things, but that old-fashioned mentality of through thick and thin, it's a wonderful thing. Um, before Bladnot, speaking of whiskey, what was your favourite whiskey? I really ironically liked Shivas Regal Royal Salute, yep. which is their 21-year-old. Ceramic. Correct. Uh, yeah. It is a blend. And that's, again, you know, people are so cynical about blends now. Look down their noses. But many of the world's great whiskies are blends. Yeah. And, in fact, the whole art of blending is in putting a product forward that has got no, that's fully rounded. It's got no sharp edges. And so blends, Johnny Blue, and many, many other blends are exquisite. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever said to you? I'll tell you that one. It's really, really um, easy because the we don't have time. But I'll, the night that we had we had a week left before we started supplying Woolworths, and the factory had completely fallen apart. And so there was literally no time left to supply the first four thousand cases or whatever. And so in my mind, and it was five o'clock in the morning, I'd been sleeping at the factory. We'd actually basically gone broke before we'd started. And I drove back, factories in Caram Downs, living in Port Melbourne, 45-minute drive. My wife spoke to me on the phone the whole way because, of course, I was really in danger of falling asleep. And when I got back and I walked in and I said, that's it, you know, we're done. We literally are done. And 
there's a whole story, obviously, how we did get in the end back and hand pack the orders and get there. And she said to me, you know what, go to sleep, get some rest. I'm so proud of you. And it was just one of those moments where you go, mate, proud of me. Like I felt like a failure. I'd, I was humiliated. And she was proud of me. It was, I woke up, I went for a swim, and we ended up moving, you know, going back down to the factory and for five days literally hand-packed, forgot about all the machinery and just went back to basics and got it out there. But that moment I, I reflect on often because I think if she'd said, you're a disaster. Well, it would have been a disaster in many, many, many ways. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, she probably had uh, many wives would have been well within their rights to say, you know what, you've stuffed this up because our house is now gone. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Yeah. But the proud of you was, was the kindest thing. Unbelievable. Surfing, favourite waves? Favourite waves. Well, we have a, incredibly blessed to have a holiday home right on Kira which is obviously one of the iconic waves of the world, and that's my local. So I'm blessed to be able to surf there and to watch it all day and go, you know what, there's a few less people on it now, I'll surf now, and Bells Beach. Yeah. Bells Beach is where, you know, it's in my will. When I'm, when I'm done and when they burn the body and they have the ashes, I've asked for them to be sprinkled at Bells because it is just, if there's ever a place that's full of meaning and spirituality and place belonging of a, you know, of place and being, for me it's bells. It's just sitting out on a board and looking back at those cliffs. I don't know. It's the most magical thing you can ever do. Superb. Fondest childhood memory? Fondest childhood memory. Wow. God, I probably have to be going back to those, you know. You don't think of them as fond at the time, I think, but I think of them as fond now, which is when you kind of look back and go, you know, that period of the family just being together and, just doing everything together, that sort of thing of like we worked at the business together, we went out together, we, if mum and dad had a social event, we went together. Um, you know, now as we move on, of course, you, you have babysitters and some people have all pairs and all that. It's such a different family unit. I look back and just go, you know what, at the time you probably didn't realise it or you weren't sitting there going, God, how blessed am I? But you look back and go, it was a real blessing. Yeah. And I think it was just a, to have that Grow up with that tight family unit where through thick and thin, like every family, you've got your, you've got your rough edges and you've got your ups and downs, but you were there for each other. I think it's an incredible thing. Who is a person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with today? Look, it's so corny, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but it have to be Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Um, I just think you know, there's many great stories, obviously. You know, there's, there's Gandhi's and there's Martin Luther King and there's incredible sportsmen and all that stuff. But for the, for, for, for the story of Mandela, obviously, and spending 27 years in prison for the crime of being, you know, wanting to be treated as an equal because of the colour of his skin, and to come out of that with no ill will, I think, is the part where you go... Whatever happened in those 27 years in prison, sitting in a four-by-four cell, probably enlightenment, and then goes on to be the first you know, elected black president of his country and lead that country out of apartheid and into the, into the you know, into modern world, I kind of just think that's the most amazing story I've ever heard of. It's yeah. just 
If you had one piece of advice you could give to a founder, an entrepreneur, what would it be? Believe in yourself. Dave Pryor, fantastic journey to follow. Plenty more to come. Uh, No doubt we'll all watch with interest. Thanks for your time and thank you for being on Discipline. Good on you, Tony. Thanks for the chat. Loved it.